from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. Right now, the data shows that we are driving more than ever. In the last 10 years, we're driving 7% more in Hawaii. For the first time ever, we have surpassed petroleum use in ground transportation. So we're using more petroleum ground transportation than in the entire electric grid. That was Aki Marceau, Elemental Accelerator's Director of Policy and Community for Hawaii. She sat down with Andy Robbins, Executive Director of HART, the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation, Harrison Rue with the City and County of Honolulu, and Amanda Eakin, Director of Transportation and Climate at NRDC. They talked about how to tackle transportation demand, smart growth, and efficiency in Hawaii's car culture. Let's listen in. So yesterday I had the opportunity to meet with about a dozen high school students from all over the islands. Um, and they're participating in a program called Converge, which we're supporting uh, in collaboration with HCAT, Hawaii Energy, Green Biz, Roberts Hawaii, DBED, and the Blue Planet Foundation. One of the things that we discussed was the transcending oil study that Don mentioned yesterday, and specifically around the mobility space. So in transportation planning and urban planning, you can solve for a multi multitude of things. So level of service, land use, uh, place making, safety is a big one. Um, but one of the things that we can do now is really solve for decarbonization. And an easy, easy way to think about that is vehicle efficiency, fuel type, and then travel demand. And a lot of the conversations that we've been having thus far is around vehicle efficiency, so cafe standards, and then fuel type, which is electric vehicles, fuel cells, hybrids, that type of thing. But what I'm really excited to talk about today is tra travel demand. And so that really speaks to multimodal transportation, rail, land use, bike share, biking, um, and then one of my longtime mentors always said that every single trip starts with the pedestrian experience, so walking, no matter what mode you're taking. During this conversation, I asked the students, if you were to choose between your cell phone and your car, which one would you choose? Do you know what they chose? Cell phone? Yeah, all of them chose cell phone, or most of them did. And I found this really interesting because Right now, the data shows that we are driving more than ever. In the last 10 years, we're driving 7% more in Hawaii. Uh, for the first time ever, we have surpassed petroleum use in ground transportation. So we're using more petroleum ground transportation than in the entire electric grid, which is outstanding to me in a bad way. And then if we don't do anything and just act as we're normally doing right now, we're actually potentially going to drive 17% more across the islands by 2045. And most of that is actually gonna be happening, most of that increase is actually gonna be happening on the neighbor islands. If I can kind of borrow a statement from Josh Stamberg yesterday, he said, show me your budget, I'll show you your values. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to share the stage with Ford Fujigami, who advises the governor, and he kind of took a transportation twist on it, and he said, Show me your shoes, I'll show you your values. So. Walking shoes. Walking shoes right there, walking socks as well. 
So I wanted to ask Harrison, the community building and transit-oriented development administrator, what have the choices in land use that we've made tell us about our priorities, about the way we move and what we care about? And what are some initiatives that are underway that are potentially shifting these priorities? In, in Hawaii, especially uh, focused on, on Honolulu, which is my day job, we've got some good news, some bad news, and then some great news, I would say. The good news is, um, if you're not from here, Hawaii sprawl is compact. Um, we know we're, we're, I think, recognized decades ago that land is, land is limited here. So um, we've got roughly 105,000 residential lots on Oahu. 120, that's the math is that's a little less than one-tenth of one percent, is one-acre lots. Everything else is, you know, six units to the acre, eight units to the acre, 12, 15, 20. So um, really compact, even our sprawl. Um, the second thing is that all the neighborhoods have centers. Uh, we have a history of building our elementary schools and our parks in the middle of the neighborhoods, even in the suburban kind of lollipop uh, you know, subdivisions. There's always a, a center, a school, a park at the center, and that tends to make it walkable. Our, our zoning and policies for decades have been to create mixed use, to create more density. Now, it's not saying there's not a lot of sprawl in the last 20, 30 years, but it's shifting back towards that and strong policies even before the rail system, even before transit-oriented development to, you know, to have density, and, and there's an, a great acceptance of that here. Um, you know, the biggest problem is the lack of connectivity and, uh, you know, our roads, we've made the same mistake a lot of cities. Our roads are too big, too wide. A lot of our blocks are really too long. Um, we're not Kansas or, or even Portland. We don't really have connected grids except in a lot of the older neighborhoods. It's really kind of hard to get around. But the basics of, of the density is really important. And that is, I think, one of the ways that we get out. Because roads are fixable, you know, and you can require more connectivity. Um, we also have a car bias culture. Um, we, we keep getting beat up whenever we try and add, you know, bike lanes and, you know, take one parking lot, but that's also something that's fixable. And, you know, there's great initiatives going on at the city um, with a lot of partners to, to work on those things. In terms of the solutions and, and good news, um, Andy's going to talk about the rail, building a 20-mile long uh, rail system that's about half built. If you haven't gone out and looked at it, please do before you go. I've been back, uh, I worked here 20 years ago on, on similar stuff, but I've been back for about five years, and we've been working on the TOD plans for 11 years. So, you know, 20-mile corridor, most of our TOD plans are adopted. We've adopted the zoning, and the cities, uh, unlike a lot of systems, the city's adopting the zoning to make it easier to develop. You'll get a massive amount of uh, additional density and height as long as you provide community benefits, affordable housing, connectivity investments. Uh, we've approved kind of five developments so far under an interim negotiated permit, and every one of those is including affordable housing, as well as streetscape improvements, connectivity improvements, bike share stations, and things like that. So we're, we're seeing the, you know, the kind of rubber hit the road with, with the improvements uh, for the vision of TOD. I've never worked in a, in a city that actually has all the departments working together you know, better than ever. Um, we have a, a bi-weekly, uh, all the infrastructure directors meeting to actually implement TOD. So departments are working together. And in the, in the great news, um, 
the city and the state are really working together on, on TOD planning because there's about 1,900 acres of developable state line along, along the corridor and uh, developing TOD plans to implement that. Now, I would say what's missing a little bit, uh, this is a challenge to the room. I'm, I'm gonna ask a question for the environmentalists here. How many of you work on anything related to land use anytime recently? Not a lot of hands, okay, which is to be expected why, why we're having the panel. Um, getting the land use right is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I used to do a lot of consulting on analysis, climate analysis, and if you compare uh, how much benefit you get in, in reduced demand and reduced energy use and reduced driving from land use, it's something that just keeps on giving forever, um, independent of the technology. So I would say the biggest challenge is really getting those of you and all your allies to really support the land use policies, the public investments, the bike lanes, the, you know, the neighborhood fights about whether or not we should make a transportation improvement. And, and I think the energy and environmental folks really need to focus a little bit more on implementation of the land use solutions. In my prior life, I, I used to work for, for Hart, actually. And I remember working with uh, Harrison Rue and a lot of the other city administrators and department heads. And we did these things called walk audits, where we went to every station area and actually walked around the entire station area to see what was um, working really well and where there could be improvements. And I would encourage every one of you to actually think about your built environment and audit it in terms of walkability or bikeability or just kind of like placemaking and, and comfort. In addition to the TOD plans, the land use ordinance is also under revision right now. So is that something that folks can get involved in? Yeah, there will be. We're just in information gathering right now. The land use ordinance has been around for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years and really uh, in planning for a complete update over the next few years. So pay attention to that and get involved. Okay, so um, I'm going to shift over to Andy Robbins, who's the executive director and CEO of the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation. And to settle any disputes, I'm just going to start off by saying, it's going to the airport. Don't worry. <laughs> so I sit at the nexus of mobility, energy, agriculture, water, um, and innovation. And one of my favorite things about the rail project is that it's incredibly innovative. I mean, we're going to be the first, I don't want to steal all of your thunder, thunder, but the first automated electric train in the United States and the second in North America after the SkyTrain in Vancouver, Canada. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about how HART is improving our mobility options and also um, some of the innovative technologies and thinking that you're incorporating into the project. Okay, well, thank you. I, I think fundamentally what the rail system is going to do is to really improve the mobility, people moving around the system, around the city, and then also connectivity, as Harrison mentioned, which also fosters uh, you know, efficient land use, um, c convenient trips for people. So fundamentally, that's what we're doing. Uh, the technology that we're using, as you mentioned, is a driverless technology, which uh, gives us a lot of flexibility, and it also sort of downsizes the footprint a bit. So, for example, our trains, our four-car trains, are going to be 240 feet long. Uh, compare that to the BART system, for example, which is an 800-foot train. Um, so that just scales down the station sizes. The whole scale of the system is scaled down. However, the capacity of the system through the driverless technology 
and the, the service that we can achieve with driverless technology is still very, very high. So we're building a lot of capacity, a high capacity system. And fundamentally what we're doing is we're going to put 120,000 people a day in electric vehicles. So I, I don't know if everybody realizes that, but uh, you know, certainly uh, we want to have the complementary electric vehicles on the road and the emerging autonomous uh, shuttles to provide first mile, last mile connectivity. But the backbone for mobility in the system will be an electric transportation system. And I, I think that's a, a really important point to, to grasp. So 120,000 people in this train per day. That's incredible. Um, to kind of give some context, those who are familiar with the bike share system, in the first six months, and this is an integrative system, so I'm not trying to poo-poo bike share or anything, but in the first six months, it was 360,000 trips per day. So within two days of riding the train, we'll have done as many trips as six months of bike share. That volume is incredible. Yeah, and that's, that's the projected ridership. And, uh, you know, after we open the system, the capacity is actually greater than that. And uh, through the technology, we can increase the service. So, for example, during the peak service, when we first open, we'll have about five minutes between trains. But we can, we can have that eventually and be around two minutes between trains and essentially double the capacity. So the growth potential is there. It's built into the system. And then you don't even need to check the timetable to find out when it's coming, which is fantastic. Right. So, for example, you mentioned the Vancouver SkyTrain. Vancouver actually is, uh, went into service in 1986, so it's quite a mature system at this point. Uh, their time between trains, or headway as we call it, is 108 seconds. So the convenience factor is incredible. There's no schedules. You don't have to consult a schedule. We won't have a schedule either. And really the rail system becomes sort of like another utility where you turn the water on, you expect the water to come out. Uh, just the same with the rail system. You show up at a station, you expect the train to come. And that's the kind of service that we want to offer. The side benefit of that from an economic standpoint is uh, what they saw in Vancouver is that with that kind of convenience, the ridership increases and therefore the revenue into the system increases as well. So, so speaking of economics, we have Amanda Eakin here from the um, National Resource Defense Council. She's the Director of Transportation and Climate for the Urban Solutions Program. And um, one of the recommendations that we saw in Transcending Oil is putting a value or a price on both parking and driving. And I'm, you, you have some interesting ways of thinking about this, and I was wondering if you could dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Thanks, Aki. But I also just want to thank, um, thank all of you for being here. This is really uh, the leading edge of Hawaii's efforts to move towards a clean energy future. So it's great to have you all in the room. Um, I'm glad that you spoke a bit about the idea of the rail as a utility because we've been having similar conversations about the transportation sector. And uh, there's a professor, Mike Manville, at UCLA we work with a lot, and he compares transportation to other utilities, such as electricity and water, um, where in the case of energy, for example, in North America, we have something like 38 authorities, whose they're called balancing authorities. Their job is to balance supply and demand every day in this very fine-tuned way so that we don't have blackouts. We don't come to expect blackouts as a daily occurrence. What he says is in the transportation sector, we just lack that kind of entity. And so what, we're, what we have every day is twice a day, our transportation system essentially fails. We have far too much supply for the limited demand of road space that we have, and therefore we all sit in this mind-numbing, maddening traffic congestion. Nobody likes to sit in traffic congestion. 
And so the idea of these pricing programs, or what we're calling in Los Angeles, where I'm doing some work, we're calling it a go zone. The idea of these pricing programs, it is really a supply and demand mechanism for managing this finite space. And the go zone concept you would take a traffic hotspot, let's say it's downtown Honolulu or downtown Los Angeles, and you put together an integrated package of mobility solutions. So you'd have those rapid transit availability, transit available at five minute headways, so it's just the most convenient thing. You would of course have bus only lanes so the bus doesn't sit in all the traffic. You'd be able to have a, a faster trip on the bus. You'd look at creating safer streets for walking and biking, and you'd have um, in addition to all these innovative mobility services, something called the decongestion fee. And essentially that is to manage the supply and demand of the road space. What that, what that decongestion fee does, um, as the Los Angeles Times put it when they editorialized in favor of this concept, is it makes people kind of pause and reconsider. Do I need to drive and do I need to drive right now? And you're talking about, in some cases, in the case of Stockholm or London, it's about 2 to $4 US. You're not talking about a lot of money. It's about the cost of a cup of coffee. But just the presence of that fee makes people consider, do I want to drive and do I want to drive right now? In those cases, in London and Stockholm, just the presence of that very modest fee was enough to make 20% of drivers shift to something else either shift to a different time of day, shift to taking transit, walking, biking, carpooling, telecommuting, whatever your choices are. In the case of London, that translated to 90,000 fewer vehicles driving into central London during the peak period, and that transforms your city. The headlines in London following implementation are really stunning. Of course, leading up to this, it, it was panned by the papers. Nobody wanted it. This was going to be a disaster. Former Mayor Ken Livingston called it, you know, bloody Sunday when this is going to be coming. And then the, way, the, the headlines following are just unbelievable. It's like the day the air filled with bird songs instead of traffic fumes. London has that Sunday morning feeling is how they describe it. And it's just transformative. Of course, what these systems also do is because there's a modest fee on those who continue to drive, it creates a revenue stream. London, that's about 150 million pounds per year. It's, it's delivered about 2 billion pounds so far. That then creates this sort of virtuous cycle of transportation where you have a revenue stream, you can put it to more and more transit availability, safe bike lanes, innovative mobility services like electric bike share and ride share and flexibly routed micro transit services. And that really gets the whole system working. And the fascinating thing to track is while public opinion was opposed to this concept before in Stockholm, London, before implementation, after it's implemented, 70% of people say, we love this. We actually don't want to take this away. In Stockholm, they actually had, they did six months. They took it out. Traffic went back up. And then they put it to the voters. And the voters voted it back in. And they said, this is a wonderful thing for our city. And we really want to do this. And the environmental benefit, this is one of the single most impactful environmental actions you could take, and it turns out that people love it. So it, I would love to con continue a conversation about how something like a go zone could help to return uh, Honolulu to the paradise it really should be. Yeah, and on a, on a very micro scale, I just keep thinking about um, surge pricing for ride hailing. And so maybe something to think about as we um, evaluate how those policies are going to um, pan out over time. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll say about the surge. I think the surge catches people off guard because there's no there's no predictability about it, and so sometimes people will 100 percent, 200 percent. In the case of these congestion charge schemes, you know what you're going to pay. It's very well vetted with the community in advance. It's a modest charge. Um, 
And, and then the thing that it really does, in, in Los Angeles we found out that during the peak period, during that time when the system fails, over 50% of the trips are not work trips. They're not people that necessarily need to be going to get your milk at 8.45 in the morning. But just because there's, no, there's nothing discouraging you from doing that, then people are making all these sorts of trips that, would, that would, they would happily shift out of the peak period. There's just no incentive or disincentive to do so. So the idea here is to sort of align financial incentives with the goals we want to see. So to close up, just one last question. Um, in one word or phrase, uh, what is the most important discussion that we're not having enough of? I suppose there is discussion on it, but uh, I think just in terms of uh, Honolulu and Hawaii, as we continue to grow, as our visitor industry and uh, visitor arrivals continue to grow, how do we um, you know, tackle the mobility question and create a sustainable transportation system uh, going forward. Yeah. I, I, would, uh, I would say I think really the whole pricing policy about new mobility, um, you know, we keep getting slammed with new rollouts of disruptive industries. Lime was the most recent, you know, we, um, and, and typically um, I'm looking ahead to fleets of autonomous electric vehicles in the equipment manufacturers dumping their fleets and you know it'll lead to a lot more congestion so we need to get on top it's not just the congestion chart is the access to roads and how we're managing that um, over the next couple of decades can I close this out Amanda? yeah uh, I would say the question is are we doing everything that we can to give people an option to get out of traffic I think there are proven case studies from around the world that there are very implementable solutions that could work here. And, are, and are, we, are we giving people those chances? Nobody likes to sit in traffic. So are we putting in place the smartest policy solutions we know work to get people moving again? You've been listening to Aki Marceau, Andy Robbins, Harrison Rue, and Amanda Eakin at the Verge Hawaii Conference in June 2018. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash center stage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.